Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes this week. We're doing one of my favorite podcast episodes, which is a Q&A episode. So periodically we get questions, we get um, comments, whether texted or emailed. You can always email us questions at info at sowespeak.com. Um, or through the website, through social media. So we love to get these questions. And so about every month or two months or three months, um, when we get a little list going, we want to answer these questions. And so um, we have a couple of difficult questions today that I think will be fun to discuss. But um, I'll kick it over to you to ask these questions. You know, I want to say one thing before we begin. A lot of this comes from the work we do at so we speak, but some of it really just comes from the day-to-day work of pastoral ministry. Right. If you're going to meet with people, if you're going to talk to people, if you're going to shepherd, if you're going to be in groups, you're just going to get a lot of questions like this. And that's actually one of the best parts of being in relationship is working these things out together. So it's not always us you know, prescribing answers to these questions. A lot of it is the day-to-day work of ministry that brings things up that you have to talk about and think through. Exactly. And it's a diverse group. And for example, you're going to see that in these questions as we go through them, that they range from a, a one very theological and two or three that are quite practical. Uh, they also are from Old Testament, New Testament, uh, just around. So this is a great mix. But let's start out with one that honestly, I get, I personally have gotten asked this question a lot and continue to get asked this question a lot. So some of our listeners may say, well, I've settled this issue for myself. But it is a perennial question. What's the best Bible translation? What do you think, This is a perennial question, and it's probably a question that is both more and less important than you think it is when you hear it. You know, because we're tempted to say, it doesn't really matter, just get a good translation. And then there's some people that are so absolutizing about this, they will only read one translation. I'll put myself closer to the second camp. But it's, it's in some ways, it's more and less important than we sometimes treat it. I'll go first why it's more important. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that every word of scripture is useful for teaching, for correcting, for reproof, for training in righteousness. We believe that all of it is God-breathed. And so if that's what you believe about scripture, and we do, then you should really want to get as close to what the Scripture says as possible. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, there are different ways to approach this issue of inspiration and authority, but it's a very different matter to say that every word of Scripture is inspired in the originals and that the main message of Scripture is inspired. Right. And if you are in the first camp, then what you want is a translation that actually gives you the words of Scripture not just the main ideas or the main focus of Scripture. And I think there can be uses for both, but as a daily reading, I would side on something that's a little bit more literal. So there's a whole spectrum that maybe we can talk about about how these translations are done. But I would say just based on on what we believe about Scripture alone should call us towards a fairly literal translation. So that would be things like, the New King James, the NRSV, the um, NASB, the ESV, those are going to be your most literal translations. Then I'm, then let's talk about how it's less, a little bit less um, important than sometimes we think it is. Once you're within that sphere, it's actually very good, if you're not reading the original languages, to see a few different takes on mm-hmm. certain passages and certain words because translation is not an exact one-to-one Science. 
there is a little bit of selection that has to take place in any translation. And so being able to compare a few translations is a really healthy thing to do in your reading, even if you have one default translation, and then sometimes you go and supplement it with others. Uh, Being too narrow on one translation actually can, can sometimes miss some of what the text is saying. And so having a few at your disposal is also helpful. I think that's really good. That's a, that's a good way to think about it because this whole idea of Bible translation is very technical and a lot of opinions, but they don't matter much in a practical day-to-day sense. Here's what matters, and I like the way you framed this, is you have, here's a good way to think about it, the way you framed it. You have translations that attempt to tell you what the text says, and you have on the on the other side, if you want to think about it as a spectrum, you have translations or paraphrases that want to emphasize what the text means. Mm-hmm. And rather than take a dogmatic position on that, whether that one is good, one is bad, one is better than the other, uh, although I agree with you, is I, I don't. I would like to not have my translation mediated through someone else telling me what it means. Mm -hmm. But in general, I understand the utility of those. So you talked about the text, the translations that tell you what it says, the the quote, more literal, which is, I put that in quotes because, you know, that word is not very popular anymore, but those were the more literal. As you get to the other extreme or the other side, you'll get paraphrases like, the message. Mm-hmm. You'll get translations like the New Living Translation, which are really focused on making this the meaning very clear. And then in yeah. the middle, you'll have translations that are trying to do a reasonable amount of both. And they're all very well-intentioned. So the NIV, the New International Version, for example, is trying to tell you what it means in mm-hmm. more English language, but trying to keep a foot in the as true as I can to what it says. So you do see a spectrum here, and it's almost like choosing what you need out of this spectrum. Right, and I looked up some stats on this not too long ago. The NIV is still the most popular version of the Bible to read. And that's why, by the way, in my slides, I use NIV in the broad teaching. In Mm -hmm. Sunday school, I use the ESV, but broad is NIV, simply to not let that get in the way of what most people have heard. Right. And so it's, it's, it's kind of your straight down the fairway translation in terms of it is, it is a, we would say it's a literal translation. Uh, It is somewhere between a word for word and thought for thought in the sense that you are getting the sense it is well within the realm of translations as opposed to a paraphrase or something like that or you know the amplified bible which adds some commentary onto the verses right. but it is not it is not trying to be as faithful to things like word order or the exact same image that's always used or the right. same um, sometimes the same syntactical uh, effects that the greek or hebrew text is going to have as opposed to something like the new american standard right. which is harder to read because they are trying to preserve some of the feel of the original language in the English. ESV is very, or the NIV is very easy to read, and I think the ESV is as well, um, although the ESV is probably a little closer word for word. Mm-hmm. Um, here's, here's another question to bounce off of this one. Why do we need new translations of the Bible? And I'm not just talking about the KJV-only folks here. Um, right. 
maybe start there though and say why we need something newer than the KJV. But why would we need a new translation today when we have all these great translations? Uh, I've got several thoughts on that, and I'll try to make them succinct. At its most basic, why would you need something newer than the King James Version from 1611 A.D.? One obvious answer is you really have more archaeology. You have more papyri of copies of the New Testament that not tell you the accuracy as much. There's a little of that, but really give you flesh out a little better of what what were the how were these words actually used then, mm-hmm. uh, because that does change over time, and we want to accurately reflect what the, what did these words mean to the original here. So there's scholarship. The second reason is there is a sense over time that words change meanings. That's very normal in culture. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes it's just to update it to not have words give you the wrong intention of what they did 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Right, And, you know, some translations are actually trying to fight against that or trying to embrace that. I think of like the voice, for example, is kind of on the line between a translation and a paraphrase, but trying to make sure that they use words that we normally use as opposed to you know, quote-unquote, biblical words. The problem, though, is sometimes you do that, you actually do change the meaning. Like, there's not a direct correspondence between the way we use a word and the way that you're hoping that it matches a word that's used in the biblical text. So, for example, it would be very hard to translate the Bible without using the word righteousness, even though righteousness is a churchy word. It has a very specific meaning in the text, and you need to know when you look at that word, that it is this word in the Greek, and it means this set of things. So, you know, if you want to translate it justice, that would be faithful to what contemporary Greeks were using that word to mean, but it doesn't mean what we mean by justice today. Right. So you have to be a little bit careful on the updated translations. Is there a confluence of a term that we use exactly in the way that that word is used in the text? You need some perspective, and there's a judgment call here. On the one hand, you don't want to just be chasing fads or political correctness. You'll be mm-hmm. publishing new translations about every year, right? Or, but there is it is true though that over decades and times, words change their flavor a right. little, and you want to get the original flavor as much as you can. So I would say that's the, the justifiable reason for mm-hmm. new translations. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a good reason for new translations. New manuscript evidence is always coming out. That's mm-hmm. that's good. Um, it, it's, it's great to reflect on that. And then, uh, you know, s- some of it is kind of a cynical reading of what's going on because you do have publishers who have pr- proprietary translations that right. they can use. And so if you're a publishing house, you really want to have an in-house translation so that you can sell Bibles and all that. And I don't actually think that's totally bad. I mean, I think a great example of that would be Crossway, for example. They they own the ESV, and they're the only ones that can publish the ESV. And they do a great job with it. And I think it's a great translation, but... It's a great translation in spite of the fact that it's owned by Crossway. It's a great translation because they assembled a great committee who are basically in the tradition, you know, the line of the RSV, the Revised Standard right. Version. And they came out with a really good translation. Now, there are other cases where you just want one to have and it needs to be different enough. Well, different for the sake of different is not a great reason to have a translation. Right. Uh, another, good re- uh, another bad reason for a new translation is this whole fad right now with doctoring the text for gender-neutral language. 
A lot of translations are doing that. And there's a big difference between um, making sure that you do a translation in such a way that nobody feels excluded that is actually included in the text. Right. So you'll see in the NIV, and or the old NIVs, and you'll see in the ESV um, a little asterisk or a little note that, you know, w- sometimes when you see, um, you know, a man of God, if it's not a specific man of God, it just means a person of God. Well, and particularly where the word brothers is used in Greek, but mm-hmm. with the clear sense of people. Right. And so they'll footnote that literally, I believe, every time that yes. you see it. In fact, it gets a little annoying after yeah. a while that they're footnoting it. But that is included in the original sense. Right. But the word says brothers. If the word said sisters, as mm-hmm. the idea is you get the sense of that's just a generic term they used for people. That's right. a good use of it. Yeah, I think that's good, now, and I like the way that they include what the actual word says and then explain what that word would have meant as right. opposed to just changing the word. But when you go beyond that and you start removing things like gendered pronouns referring to God the Father, when you go out of your way to make sure that everything is equal and non-determinate, that actually changes the meaning of those verses uh, because right. that's not what the original actually says. And so sometimes you'll see that in translations, sometimes under good auspices, but not usually very helpful. Um, we haven't talked much about paraphrases, but I do think there is a place for paraphrases. So mm-hmm. the message is the most popular paraphrase. And I think the message is a wonderful resource. It's great to read. It can really give you the sense of what's going on. I just think especially for study. Now, if you're just going to sit down and read, I think it's great. Read the message. But if you're going to study, I would always use the message in conjunction with another translation. So, for example, at a Bible study that I'm a part of, we print out the passage for that week. And on the left side, we do the ESV. And on the right side, we do the message. So you read the ESV. And then you get basically a paraphrase slash a little bit of a commentary from Eugene Peterson on what that text Mm -hmm. means. And as long as that's what you know you're getting with the message... That's great. I think that's a perfect use for it. It's really a helpful resource, but it's not a substitute for a translation. And and I, to be fair to Peterson, nor was it ever intended to be on his part. Right. No, I think that's good. Well, hopefully that's helpful to you. As you can tell, we study. I think we both study out of something that's more literal, word for word. I'm currently studying out of the ESV most of the time. How about you? Yeah, same. And again, I'm not an ESV bigot. I just think its scholarship is really good. I used to be. I'm a recovering ESV (laughs) bigot. I think its scholarship is quite good. And then again, I teach out of the NIV because I think that languaging is most useful uh, to people. And then obviously there's a place for uh, things that are a little looser in their translation, but helpful in meanings, things like NLT, etc. One final note, though, for those of you that have children, this is something that we discovered. There is a translation kind of based on the NIV, the New International Version, and it's called the NI small r V, New International Reader's Version. And the small r is basically, it's kind of made for kids. And it is a great translation for children. Mm-hmm. And it's pitched at a lower level. What is what would you say the NIV is pitched at as far as a reader's level? Kind of like a newspaper, eighth or ninth grade yeah, I think reading so. level? So, yeah, I mean, I think so. it, it's I, a very I, I don't say that to be critical. I'm just saying it's intended to be accessible. Yeah. I would say that by the time we got to fourth graders, third, fourth graders, we were using the NIRV. It's it's just intended at that mm-hmm. reading level. I just wanted to mention that before we moved on. Those of you that have children, that NIRV is a good translation. 
Well, here's the second one. Let's go completely to the other end. And let me ask you a, a theological question that comes up a lot. Did the Exodus in the in the Old Testament, the Exodus of the Jews out of Egypt to the Promised Land, to Canaan, to Israel, did the Exodus really happen the way it's described? What are your thoughts on that? Well, this is a this is a complicated question in one sense and a simple question in the other, and it is very very common. I mean, this is a very common thing to wonder: how could this possibly have happened? You know, how mm-hmm. could this you know have? And there's a lot of things like this in scripture. You know, I think one of the ones that's really common right now is there's a bunch there's a new big discussion uh, with William Lane Craig and some others about um, the creation narrative, and you know you have people being like, well, I totally believe that you know it could have happened in any order amount of days or whatever but i mean some of this has got to be mythical because look we got talking snakes in mm-hmm. you know the garden of eden right and my thought on every one of these the knowing the ark talking animals um the exodus the david stories whatever is the first question you've got to ask is does the text present this as if it is true because there is a big difference in some of these cases as to whether or not the text is presenting it as if it is literally true or not. And that can be a dangerous thing, too, because you have a lot of people, you know, if you if you just pop on the History Channel, you'll have people that will tell you that no one ever thought that these things were true. That's, that's not always good guidance either. But what is the text trying to do here? And once you identify that, why would you not believe what the Bible says? That's right. the first place to start, is if you believe that the Scriptures are the inspired Word of God— what is it that's compelling you to think we need to revise our understanding of this? Because usually it's something that's an outside concern. It's not, oh, I have textual evidence that maybe I should read this differently. Or, mm-hmm. you know, my my actual study of Scripture has caused me to think this. Instead, it's usually something like, historically, we don't have any evidence of this. Or scientifically, this is really hard to believe. Or morally, we don't really do things like this anymore. So now I've got to reevaluate the text. So I think the motive is always the first thing is mm-hmm. if this is what you think the scripture is really saying, what is causing you to think maybe we shouldn't take it at face value? Um, with the Exodus in particular, it provides a good case study because more than some of these other events, it is the central event of the Old Testament. Right. I mean, the Exodus and the exile are the central events and the Exodus is bigger. It is the central event of the Old Testament. To claim that it did not happen, like just did not happen at all, would make every single person who wrote in the Old Testament and every single person who referred to it out to either be uninformed or ill-intentioned. And I think that is very unlikely that you have the entire tradition of people that is based on this event that did not happen. That would be hard to believe at the outset for an inspired scripture. The other thing is, it's a different thing to say, did the Exodus happen? And then to say, but did this part of the Exodus happen? You know, so you have different versions of how the Exodus That's a good point. Okay, obviously they left Egypt and they came to the Promised Land. But where did they cross the Red Sea? Okay, that's different. You know, or what was the crossing like? Mm-hmm. We talked about this in our Exodus episode. There's several different versions of how and where the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and where exactly they went afterwards that I think are totally open because it fits that first category of is what is the Bible saying and what motive do I have for not believing it? 
study of the text itself could give you a couple of different impressions about where the people crossed the Red Sea, for example, and how deep it might have been at that point. But it doesn't give you any, any reason to doubt that these people actually never were in Egypt, and this is a mythology they made up about themselves in the wilderness so that they could come in with a divine right into the Promised Land. I think that's right out. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's a good point you make about motive. So, for example, let me walk through just a couple of these ideas. The biblical account is that you have a million or more of the Israelites who leave Egypt and make their way through the through the desert and make their way eventually to the land of Canaan, land modern land of Israel. That fits with the data because you have Pharaoh concerned about the Israelites because they're so great in number they could be a military threat. On the other hand, you have a motive that says, yeah, but I can't imagine a million people going through the desert and that actually working. How does that work? How does that logistics work? You know what? Maybe that was in, that part was inflated. Maybe they mm-hmm. really did leave, but it was inflated. And maybe it was a handful, mm-hmm. a small group of Israelites who left, went back, and then the story goes on. So the text lends credence to what the text actually says, but my motive is, yeah, but I can't imagine the logistics of that working, so maybe I'll downsize it. Mm-hmm. Another would be uh, that the Israelites never actually left Egypt and came to the Promised Land. They basically were Canaanites who differentiated themselves and became the Israelites. And Mm -hmm. so the Exodus story is a way of saying we never really felt like we fit here. We're Mm -hmm. different people. Problem with that is you have a lot of archaeology that all of a sudden, archaeologically speaking, you see uh, encampments and villages throughout the uh, the mountains of Judea come up in a relatively short period of time, and all of them have a distinct ethnic marker of no pig bones. Mm -hmm. In other words, they are not like the other villages, and these villages are all clustered together in a period of time. That sure looks like somebody moved in who was very different from the people that lived there. But my reason for thinking maybe they're indigenous people who just differentiated themselves. They didn't come from Egypt. They're just Canaanites that got on a diet. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and, and became something new. That reflects my inability to think that mm-hmm. the exodus is good. So the motive yeah. there is typically not scientific yeah. or archaeological. It's more yeah. what I have trouble believing. I want to add two more, two more criteria to this. The first one being a lot of times you hear arguments from silence about events in the Bible. So, for example, uh, Noah and the Ark. So we haven't found the ark, therefore the ark doesn't exist. Right. Okay, you can't prove a negative. So this is just a general rule of logic. You cannot say, because we have not found it, therefore it does not exist. Because you have not looked everywhere. And you can't look everywhere at once. And history would tell you that's a dangerous argument to make. Because yes. things get dug up all the time. This is exactly the argument they made about Troy, the ancient city mm-hmm. of Troy. They just weren't looking in the right place. So just because we haven't found something doesn't mean that that didn't happen. In fact, the only thing you can prove is when you find it, you know it did happen. Um, So there is a little bit of just withholding judgment on some of these things as to to where they were or whether we found them or not. New archaeology is being uncovered all the time. Like I don't know if you saw this, but earlier, I guess this was in late 2020, 
they found a little piece of pottery that has the name Jeroboam on it. Yes. Which is Gideon's name. That is significant. Yes. That is really cool. And it wasn't even something I think that people were looking for. We got to have, you know, external verification of Gideon. But you find that kind of stuff looking for other things. and, Mm -hmm. And that's a really early testament to the people of Israel and the fact that they were living there and the stories that we read in the book of Judges. The other thing I'll say is, and this is where I don't think we put enough emphasis a lot of times, even as Bible teachers, does the Bible say anything else about it? The Mm -hmm. Bible interprets itself. And a lot of times you'll see the Bible comment on earlier stories and characters uh, with a really nice interpretive lens. So Mm -hmm. for example, um, I was talking to somebody the other day who, who was saying that they don't believe in a historical Adam just because they read it in Genesis. They believe in a historical Adam because they read it in Romans. Yes. And Paul is convinced that Adam was a real person. Jesus is convinced that Adam was a real person. And the Bible gives us ways of interpreting these events a lot of times later in the Bible. So we believe that it's all inspired, and that means that not just the event itself and the telling of the event, but later the interpretation of the event is inspired. So I'll give you a good example of this. There's a huge discussion, not just in scholarly circles, but in churches in general, over what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah actually was. Right. And, uh, you know, for most of history, people have thought that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was sexual in nature. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, you want to alleviate that based on some cultural concerns. And there's a big group of people who have argued, actually, it was hospitality. Lack of hospitality uh-huh. was the main sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you can do some cultural work and figure out that that really was a big priority in those days, being yes. hospitable. But the problem is... The book of Jude talks about Sodom and Gomorrah as if their sin was sexual in nature. Mm -hmm. That's a biblically sanctioned interpretation of that event. And whether it's the flood, you know, you have 1st and 2nd Peter, you have Jesus talking about Noah and uh, the flood. You have other passages that can shed light on the historical accuracy, the interpretation, the nature of what happened that we believe are also inspired. So that's another lens to use. And that's a really important one. And to take that one step further is Jesus believed certain things in the Old Testament that I think he believed everything in the Old Testament, but we know from the New Testament that Jesus talks about Jonah and portrays that as that actually happened and I'm going to tell you what it means now. Mm -hmm. And so I think you get into a real dilemma if you start mythologizing some of the Old Testament where the New Testament says, no, that's true, is you have to really come upon the idea of, do I think Jesus was just poorly informed? Right. That's a tough question. And it really gets at the root of authority and inspiration. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really true. So yes, uh, my reading of the Exodus is it did indeed really happen. I think there's good evidence that it happened exactly the way it said it happened. And I think typically reasons to question that in any serious way, and I'm not opposed to questioning scripture and examining it and using our minds, but I think being convinced of something else usually comes from external motivations that you, like you suggested. Okay, skipping again, let's go to the uh, New Testament. And one of the questions I get asked a lot, got asked this recently, thought I'd kick it over to you is if I'm, uh, and this isn't, this wasn't happened, by the way, from a new believer, although I get this a lot from new believers, is I want to read through the New Testament 
what's the best order to read through the New Testament? Should I just start with Matthew and end with Revelation? Or would you suggest a reading plan that went in a different order? What's the best way to read through the New Testament? Well, I don't know if there is a right way to do this, so I'm just going to give a personal preference. Yeah. We've talked about Bible study, uh, Bible reading plans before on here. I am a big fan of Bible reading plans. I think it, it, it compensates for all the things that keep you from reading the Bible, either whether it be lack of discipline or lack of motive or you know distraction. It's nice to just sit down, read what you're told to read, and know that in a few months you're going to get through this portion, or in a year you're going to get through the whole thing, or two years. So I am a big fan of that. The problem with most Bible reading plans is they take you into the New Testament and you read four Gospels in a row before you get to the letters. And that can get very redundant. Now, mm-hmm. I'm currently in a Bible reading plan. Laura and I are reading together where, and we've done this before, we are just reading straight through the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And we're in um, Luke at this point, coming on the third telling of some of these stories. You know, you, you like to say, the Sunday school answer is these stories never get old. But I think sometimes it can be very helpful to read Matthew and then read three or four of the epistles and right. then come back and read Mark and then read three or four of the epistles and mm-hmm. so on until you get to the end. It's actually really interesting to read John and Revelation together. Start in John 1, yes. end in Revelation 22. There, I, I am of the opinion, not everybody shares this opinion, but I am of the opinion that there are some literary continuations between yes, those two books. I agree. Obviously, same author different subject matter, but I think there are some patterns that run through both of those books together in the same way that there are some patterns that run through Luke and Acts together because they're part one and part two in that Mm -hmm. case of of, um, a set. So something like reading Matthew and then Romans through 2 Corinthians and then Mark and then you know you go through Galatians all the way to Philippians maybe then maybe you read Luke and Acts together because they are part 1 and part 2 mm-hmm. and then you go and you finish the general epistles and you read John and then you read Revelation something like that is great but again this is a personal preference thing this is whatever gets you in the word if you're one of those people that has got to check the next chapter off the list <laughs> there's nothing wrong with starting in Matthew 1 right. ending in Revelation yeah you know, another one is I have, do read through the Bible. I'm not doing it this uh, this method this year. I'm reading through the Bible this year. Last year I did a chronological Bible, which is great. And when you get to the New Testament, what that does is it basically puts the four Gospels together and tries as best you can, put it in a chronological order, and then you read the letters, mm-hmm. for example, in chronological order. And so that's not bad, but that's not going to be my recommendation. Here's my recommendation. It's very similar to yours. Read one Gospel. Start with one Gospel. When I became a Christian, I started with the Gospel of John, and that's still my top recommendation. Mm-hmm. If you're going to read one Gospel, read the Gospel of John. Then I like to read the history, which mm-hmm. is go straight to Acts. So, for example, if you wanted, you said, well, I've read the Gospels before. Great. Do Luke and Acts. Mm-hmm. It's going to feel like history and a continued right. story to you. So once you've read a Gospel and Acts to get a little bit of the narrative story of the early church, then I like to read the letters by author. So, for example, read the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. Mm-hmm. Read 1st and 2nd Peter. Read all of the Paul's, Paul's epistles. Uh, I, I like just getting with an author, even though the author obviously is the Holy Spirit. It is inspired. Nevertheless, there are style differences, and you can kind of keep the story of a person through this. You see John in the gospel somewhere in the middle, a 
John, perhaps. I think you see 1st, 2nd, 3rd John as an old, older mm-hmm. John. You see Revelation near the end of his life. Paul, you'll see some of the letters written early. Mm-hmm. You'll see some written later. And you can feel a movement through them. So right. I kind of like that. I'd say pick a gospel, mm-hmm. do the book of Acts, and then pick an author and mm-hmm. read the epistles. Uh, it's just a different way. It's not the right way, but that might be an interesting way to read through the New Testament. Right. So, well, final question for you. Here's something that I think uh, all teachers and leaders in the church wrestle with, and frankly, to some extent, whether you're a small group leader, you're a Sunday school teacher, you're a senior pastor like you are. especially of children's volunteers. Children's volunteers are, that is a very good point. You are a leader. You are a teacher. Uh, Is, as a teacher, what teaches you? Mm-hmm. This is a personal question. What do you use so that you can continue to learn? Do you have podcasts? Do you have books? Whatever. How do you as a teacher keep learning? Not preparing for your next lesson. Right. What teaches you, Cole? This is, I love that you made that distinction because there is a difference between what you're reading in order to teach mm-hmm. and what you're reading in order to grow. And mm-hmm. those actually cannot always be the same. You cannot right. constantly try to grow off of your teaching uh, and actually continue to grow. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, a lot of times you will grow from your own study for your, your teaching, but you need to make sure that you're doing things in addition to that. And so I, I like to listen to a good variety of preaching during the week. I would say my default um, sermon is would be the daily sermons of John Piper. There's a podcast that just hmm. plays a sermon of his randomly every day. So you can just load it up on your feed. You'll get one. It could be from 2008 at the cross conference. It could be from, you know, 1993 at a regular old Sunday at Bethlehem Baptist. It could be, you know, whatever. But it's just a random message from him, which, I mean, he has so many sermons that you can keep this going for years every day, just randomly shuffled. And um, I I love listening to that. I like his preaching. Um, He is a very careful exegete. But he is not, it doesn't preach like a commentary. I mean, he's, he's going to give you word for word exegesis in a lot of cases, but he's mm-hmm. going to apply it well. So I like that. I like, re- I like listening to Herschel York, who's a pastor of Buck Run Baptist Church in Louisville. He was my preaching instructor at Southern. I think he's a great preacher. Um, I've started listening to Robbie Gallaty some. He's a, a great preacher. Their church is going through a huge revival. I mean, they are baptizing thousands of people right now. So I, I wanted to kind of see what's going on with that. I like to listen to Rick Warren. I think there's probably mm-hmm. few people who can apply things to your life better than Rick Warren. I like listening to Eric Geiger every now and then from Mariner's Church. Mm-hmm. Um, Geiger was a curriculum guy before he went there. And so mm. he has a real interesting way of, of preaching. Um, and then the last guy I'll say is Josh Howerton who his church, I think, I'm trying to remember exactly the name of the church. I listen to this podcast pretty frequently, but he's in Houston. And he, he what's interesting about him is he has one of the top 10 biggest churches in the country. And he's about 40 from what I can tell. Really young guy, but he is very committed to the inspired word of scripture. So he's very applicable. He's very good to listen to. He's in, you know, entertaining, but he is a really solid biblical preacher. And to do that at a church you know, that big, at that young of an age, I think he's, he's really mm-hmm. good to listen to. So there's a, there's a good section of preachers. Well, 
uh, for me, I think of myself a little more as a teacher than a preacher. I mean, they're slightly different things, although I would argue everything needs content. Everything needs biblical content. But I do understand they're a little bit different. So I maybe come at it a little differently, but I too listen to sermons probably at least one a week. I listened to yours from uh, a week ago Sunday, and it was just one of the best constructed sermons I've ever heard. And uh, that's not a paid announcement, and it's actually not even biased. Uh, that was really well done. I listen to, obviously, sermons here, uh, Marty Grubb's sermons, and I always learn uh, one way or another, I'm going to learn something. And I say that not out of arrogance. I say that as having been a Christian for a long, long time is you can always learn something, mm-hmm. either new factual information. Of course, Marty's presentation style is so different than mine that he's always teaching me something that can make me better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I listen to other teachers here. I'll give you an example, though. In the politics series I just finished, I listened to three sermons of Andy Stanley, on that topic, I uh, not so much to use any of the material that he used because we were coming at this very differently, but I wanted to hear how is he coming at it? How is he mm-hmm. presenting this? Another one on the politics series, Tony Evans mm-hmm. had some great sermons on that, and I used a couple of quotes out of that, but also his perspective was good. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I was a fan before. I'm an even bigger fan now. Yeah, I like Tony Evans of a lot. Tony Evans' uh, preaching and his sermons. So that was an example of dipping in there. I listened to Tim Keller a lot because I think Keller's more a teacher than a preacher, Mm -hmm. although I think he's a very good preacher as well. But I think he comes from a teacher's perspective, and I learn a lot, uh, some content stuff, but also really good ways of connecting with the heart as well as connecting with the head. Yeah. But for me, one of the things I do every week is I try to listen widely to a lot of things you wouldn't think had anything to do with Scripture, and they don't on the surface of it. But from my perspective, everything comes into teaching. And so economics, history, that kind of thing. So I like being well-read and well-listened, and I want to think through it from a biblical lens. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is one of the functions of So We Speak, is how to look at everything through a biblical lens. And so uh, my most of my podcasts are not religious, but the ones that are, are from some of those kinds of teachers. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you everybody for sending in questions. And um, anytime you have questions, we'll either, we'll usually answer them in email before we do a podcast. We like to save these up and hopefully this has been helpful. And hopefully you have a few takeaways here that will help you continue to grow. And as always, thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.